This is Mark Jackson, Isaac on the Orville, and you're listening to the Planetary Union Network, the Orville Fan Podcast. And this is Michael May. And this is Planetary Union Network, the Orville Fan Podcast. Uh, with us tonight is composer Joel McNeely. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Joel. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, we talked to, to Bruce Broughton um, last season on this show, and uh, it's, this is going to be like a great bookend to that discussion, I think, because uh, uh, he, of course, wrote the, the, the opening uh, titles, and, uh, and and how, how many episodes have you scored? Are you, you the regular guy, right? Uh, <laughs> I think I'm a regular uh, guy. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I keep asking me back. I'm, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I did six last season, and I've done three so far this season, um, and uh, planning on more. Awesome. You've got a really cool filmography too. Um, what, what was your first score that you did? Uh, Can you remember that part? Was, uh, yeah, I do remember. It was a it was a low, low, low budget movie called Samantha, and it was about um, a musician, a, a violinist, and I happened to be married to a violinist, and oh, cool. Uh, and it was it was kind of a real labor of love and because the score was really kind of true to what real chamber music is. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't kind of Hollywoodized as they sometimes are. And um, so I really put my heart and soul into it and, and actually a lot of money. I, I, I took the fee that I had and I doubled it with my own money and I hired a, a pretty big orchestra. I didn't make a dime on the, on the project, but mm-hmm. um, I made a score that was, something I was proud of, and kind of a lot of stuff uh, flourished from that from that one project. Um, certainly awesome. the Indiana Jones Chronicles came out of that. Oh, okay. Just some of the same uh, producers are, are were involved in both, or you just no, sort of get your... No, out there? Uh, actually, Intrada Records and Doug Fake um, released the soundtrack on, on a guy who had never done anything at all. And wow. was I think I, don't know, I think I was thirty maybe, and uh, maybe younger. I think it was younger, and he released the soundtrack, and the soundtrack got around, and people listened to it, and that led to some really beautiful opportunities. Cool. And did, did you always want to be a film composer, or did you have uh, other musical aspirations before that, or how did you fall into? Um, no, this this, is, <laughs> this was it for me. Yeah, always my goal from the time I was a little kid. Nice. Who are some of your heroes? Well, I got into it because of Elmer Bernstein. Okay. Um, I remember I had two lightning bolt moments with Elmer Bernstein when I was eight years old. I heard the score to To Kill a Mockingbird, mm. and I thought the 
opening theme was haunting and magical, and I went into the piano in my house, and I tried to figure it out. And I spent, I remember, I spent a couple of years trying to figure it out because it's really not, it's not all that simple. It's, it sounds simple, but it's very complex, and I could never quite get it. And then yeah. a few years later, my dad was a college professor at the University of Wisconsin, but he had this kind of weird life where he also wrote Hollywood screenplays and produced uh, television. And he got the opportunity to do a spinoff of a show called Marcus Welby, MD, mm. and, and executive produce. And the show was called Owen Marshall, Counselor at Law. And uh, my dad was the, the showrunner on it. And so we moved out to California for a year, and he hired Elmer Bernstein to write the main title. Wow. I got, to, I think it was 12 or 13, and I got to go to the, to the recording session of the main title, and my dad had told Elmer that I was a young composer that was not a composer at the time, obviously, but a young musician who was a fan of his. And he invited me to the podium, and he gave me a set of scores that he had already had made for me. Wow. And he let me sit right behind the podium as he conducted the orchestra, and it was kind of over from that moment. Yeah. Wow, very cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, so, yeah, like you said, you worked on the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles um, and, and did some other stuff with Lucasfilm, too, right? You did uh, like, like the Shadows of the Empire video game. Um, what yep. else did you done this film? I did Radio Land Murders for Oh, years. sure. Right. Yeah. Which was, uh, you know, a really, really fun and amazing project. It, it took a full year of my life because it it was a, about a, a radio show on, on 1938 on its inaugural night of a new network. And it was done in real time. So it was a two-hour mm -hmm. radio show. So I had to produce all of the music that would go on in a two-hour radio show. So I had to get in from script level and be composing all of these things in advance. And then I spent all this time on the set as they shot it and then wrote the score to it afterwards. And it was just an incredible learning experience. And, uh, you know, ironically, Seth MacFarlane, who, you know, we're, we're here to talk about, um, told me years later that it was the Radioland Murders soundtrack that he had when he was in college that led him to call me when he came to California. Wow, cool. Yeah, that's a that's a really cool underrated movie. Like a lot of people talk about that movie, but um it's, that yeah, was... it's a it's a strange one, but it is it is certainly there's a whole lot of intent that went into it. Yeah, yeah. Um and then tell me about writing for the young Indiana Jones Chronicles because it's a, it's a period um, piece, obviously, but uh, uh, like what kind of inspiration or studying did you have to do to, uh, to, to write for that show? Uh, it, it, it was an education of terror. Because, really? Yeah. I came into it feeling like I had no idea what I was doing. I was in way, above my head and Lawrence Rosenthal was the other composer who you know is a legend and here I was this young 33 year old kid and I really had to struggle to to figure out where I you know 
kind of fit into all of this. So it was very stressful, and it was very high education. I called it film scoring boot camp. Because <laughs> each, each show was its own little movie, and it, right. it had its own period in time. It had its own uh, period and uh, place in the world, and it had its, its own story apart from the overall umbrella of Young Indy. So each show was like a little movie. And, you know, I spent... I remember I went up to the Brand Library in Glendale, and uh, they had this amazing record library, and I was listening to records of all different music from all over the world. That's how long ago this was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just trying to educate myself on, on the music of this country and that country. and um, So it was a baptism of fire in many ways, but it, it in every way formed me as I am now. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I would not, I would not be doing what I am now without young Indy. Cool. Yeah, and do you still find yourself kind of going back to, you know, like some of this international music or world music or however we want to call it, but like, do those influences, do you find those still kind of creeping into your work today or? Well, I mean, I have really eclectic case. Um, I listen to a lot of different kinds of music, but mm-hmm. the funny thing about writing music for a living is, you know, when you get really busy, you really don't listen to a lot of music. I mean, sure. You know, unless you're studying for, you know, researching for a new score, um, there's there's not a lot of time for kind of discretionary listening, oddly enough. Yeah. Um, you've done a ton of work for Disney as well. Um Tell me about some of those projects. Have you done all about a bunch of stuff with the, the Tinkerbell series and uh, and a lot of the the direct to video kind of sequels that they did uh, in the early two thousands? What what was that experience like? Oh, it was just magnificent. I, you know, <laughs> the the Disney Toon animation team, headed by Matt Walker, um, were all about making the scores as good as they could possibly be. And mm-hmm. and in, in service of that, they gave me all the resources that I wanted and needed. If I needed, you know, an 80-piece orchestra, they gave it to me. If we needed a special Irish choir, mm-hmm. we flew over Ireland and we recorded that choir. Um, it, was, it was having all the resources you could possibly need to, you know, to bring your score to life. And I did, I think, 13 movies with them, and uh, uh, I was so grateful for every single one of them. You know, they were just they were just a blank page that I got to have, you know, let my imagination run wild. Mm. And, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that time. It, it was really fun. Cool. And then, like you said, at some point you uh, got connected with Seth MacFarlane, and uh, uh, was that? I know you produced some of his records uh, or his like recording sessions. Um, what was that like? Yeah. Um, well, we've done Seth and I have done five records together now. The fifth one is wow. out. Um, the first four I arranged and produced, and we had just an incredible time doing those records and and it's a you know it's just a really rich collaboration he 
loves the music so much and is very knowledgeable about the music and about the history of it and in fact has taught me a tremendous amount and you know so to to get to write these arrangements and that kind of style of music and we always have the resources to have a, a you know a nice good sized orchestra and the best musicians and you know it's been it's been just a tremendous amount of fun cool um and and then you uh oh and I, you... pardon me I should add so yeah. um I produced and arranged the first four and then the fifth uh, album that I produced is arranged by Andrew Cotty, who is uh, one of my colleagues as a composer on the Orville, and he wrote a, a stellar album of arrangements that Seth sings um, on an album that's about to come out called uh, Once in a While. Okay. Cool. Uh, and you worked with him on uh, A Million Days to Die in the West as well, right? Was it, yeah. Was that your first Western, or have you done other Westerns besides? I've done some Westerns kind of inside of things. Young Indy had some Westerns. Oh, sure, right. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of the animated movies I've done had some kind of Western music, but it's the first true Western. And, uh, yeah, it was a blast. It was a cool. Blast. Yeah, you were talking about Elmer Bernstein, and, of course, The Magnificent Seven is a, a classic. Well, that was, yeah, that was always in the back of my mind. You're right. just never going to do better than that. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but uh, so, so kind of maybe can you talk about the difference between scoring something like uh, a Western versus like a sci-fi show like uh, like the Orville? Um, or, or, you know, they're, they're different. Like I'm sure different genres kind of have like their specific kind of, I don't want to say tropes, but like they're, their ticks or something like uh, I don't know. Is that a is that even a true statement? <laughs> like when you write a western, do you kind of think in a certain way um, versus a sci-fi show? Uh, yes, I, I think <clears throat> it certainly depends on the project. In the case of Million Ways, there was no um, ambition to reinvent the wheel. The the idea was I wanted to write as classic a Western score as I could possibly write mm -hmm. within what what are considered to be the norms of the genre. So <clears throat> following in Elmer's footsteps and obviously a tremendous amount of, um, of leaning on the music of Aaron Copeland and, you know, textures and harmonies and melodies like that, uh, that, that was what I was going for um, and what Seth was going for. Uh, in the case of, you know, in the case of things like the Orville, I think the Orville is is more. Each show is kind of a movie for me. Um, mm. I, I try and kind of invent a new palette for each show, and I don't know if that comes across or not. But um, I try and start over with each show. Sure. So uh, the show I'm working on right now. I'm, having a great time writing and am struggling like crazy because <clears throat> I'm trying to find a new palette, a new voice for, the, mm. for this particular show and, you know, exploring. And, you know, I told Seth yesterday I worked for eight hours and I wrote 12 bars. 
but it's going to get a lot faster than that. But that's because I was trying to find out what the voice is for this particular episode. And to me, that's the fun part. You know, that's yeah. the challenge. It's, it's often not about what it is as much as what it isn't. You know, you start, you start saying, well, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this. No, 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 no. You, you eliminate all of those, and you say, mm. well, what you're left with is what it is. Mm. And that takes time. But just the narrowing down of it takes time. Yeah. So what's the process like for, for scoring an episode, an episode of the Orville? Like, just from the time it, are you like handed a script? Does that kind of kick everything off or how to, what is, what goes into it? Uh, I do read scripts and I generally try not to pay too much attention to them because, uh-huh. you know, that, that's the kind of the black and white, you know, charcoal drawing of the story. Mm-hmm. And while everything flows from that, all of the, all of the art that happens on the set is informative. Mm-hmm. So I take information not only from the story and from the script and from the dialogue, but the pacing of the editing and the directing and the look of the show, even the colors, if the colors are bright, if the colors are muted, uh, that, that has an influence on how I orchestrate. Mm. You know, sometimes I'll see a scene that's just very, very kind of, the lights are just really clamped down and it's really a kind of a dark uh, scene. And I will write my, my orchestration to what I think is the musical representa- rep- representation of what that looks like. Gotcha. So are you... When you sit down to score, are you do you pretty much have like the the fully edited episode in front of you to kind of uh, work from? I mean, is it is it, is it pretty much done by the time it gets to you? Except for the music, it is, it is locked in terms of editing. Yeah, yeah. but they they might be tweaking some effects or things like that. It, yeah, it's there. The visual effects are um, generally very much temp when I'm when I'm writing, but the show is locked. The pacing is locked. The editing is locked. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, I, I do my writing from that. And one of the fun things is at the sessions, um, usually by the time we record the music with the orchestra, there's a, a finished uh, visual effects print that I generally see for the first time when I'm recording with the orchestra. Mm. So I've, I've spent weeks and weeks and weeks looking at this picture and seeing one thing and then I get to the session with the orchestra and suddenly I'm seeing all of the backgrounds and all of the cool stuff that these amazing artists put in and it's really fun I mean it's it's like it's almost like watching something in black and white and working on it for a long time and then you get to see it in color it's it's kind of thrilling about how long does it take you to write a score for an episode um, generally about three weeks. The one I'm working on right now will take me five weeks. Yeah. Um, it's got a, it's got a ton of music in it. It's a big episode. Yeah. And then recording, what, how long are those sessions? Uh, 
they can go from three to four hours to the one I'm working on now, which will be six hours. Yeah, wow, that's big. And, you know, <laughs> we have we have a we have a large orchestra by any standards in the history of television music mm. of um, generally eighty musicians, but uh, on the show I'm working on now, which has got some you know extra special kinds of uh, needs and scenes um we're gonna have over 90 wow 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 that's cool (laughs) Uh uh-huh are they like so some of those extra ones are that like special instruments that you're bringing in or um what it it generally applies to size and you know it's it's a really epic episode so yeah um, seth really wanted to bring a you know real feature film sensibility to the score well um so i noticed uh so we just watched uh nothing left on earth accepting fishes uh was the episode this week and uh i know there are a lot of references um and and even visual cues i think to indiana jones um did i detect some musical cues from indiana jones in there too or maybe i'm making that up no, if they're in there, that was unintentional. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> Good to know. Um, and I guess my last question is about uh, the season one soundtrack, which is coming out soon. Um, were those re-recordings of your scores, or are those um, recordings taken directly from the, the scoring sessions? No, no, those are the, 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 the recordings from the sessions. Um, wow. Bruce is... Uh, Bruce Broughton's amazing pilot episode and his themes, and then uh, scores by, you know, incredible scores by John Debney and Andrew Cotty, and uh, there's over two hours of music on the thing. That's great. Yeah, yeah. we're really we're really looking forward to, like, to listening to that. Yeah, it was um, really perfect timing to have you on since it comes out like next week. Well, I hope people will check it out. I, you know, so much time and effort and um, intent went into making this music, and and it's uh, there's some really fun stuff on there. I think. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Joel. Man, it was really it was it was insightful, and uh, um, I, I wish you much luck and and many many more episodes. <laughs> thank you, and thank you for uh, being devoted to this show that we're working so hard on much appreciated yeah our pleasure our pleasure all right well thank you very good and have a great night okay take care all right so that was joel mcneely uh composer on several episodes of the oroville and uh, what a great conversation and uh I'm, I'm glad that we got to talk to him um but i really do feel like this is like a great companion interview to the bruce broughton one we did last year yeah i was yeah great to chat with joel and i kind of wish i could chat more but i have a raging thunderstorm and raging headache going on in the background so it's kind of making it difficult to uh unmute my mic (laughs) so um all right so we uh this week we had um the episode nothing left on earth excepting fishes which um i stumbled on whenever um John Kassar asked last week, you know, if we knew what that was from, and I, I knew right. it, I knew it, but it, you know, we confirm it now. It's the King and I. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did not know until it showed up in the movie or in the episode. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a movie that I've seen before, but I'm not super familiar with it. Yeah, I. it's been a, a long time. But yeah, that's kind of, um, you know, odd sentence. Nothing left on earth excepting fishes. Right. Kind of sticks right. a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so, um, we, uh, we, we came back this week with, um, some uniform changes, new badges, new, uh, kind of new design on the, uh, epaulets. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I, I think I knew that they were coming, but I I can't say they actually jumped out at me, um, you know, which is not at all a, a, a criticism. Um, I know a lot of hard work went into it, but uh, um, it's probably more just a comment on my observation skills than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, and also, um, we got uh, we got Tharl back, which uh, which John Kassar mentioned he'd be back again this season. Right. And uh, he was sweaty. <laughs> so funny. So funny. Like, I'm really glad he's not going to be, like, the normal guy, like the regular person. Um, but I really enjoyed him. It is kind of the interim. And that, that mellow alert line was super funny. <laughs> that was my first big laugh of the, of the episode. Yeah, mellow alert. <laughs> <laughs> Uh man. And uh yeah, and so and, and I like the this episode's kind of introduced. They're just on a uh just on a supply run. Really just just you know, taking some supplies from point A to point B. Like Malloy refers to them as, as pizza guys at, at one point. Right. Uh which yeah, I get it. Like, you know, they're supposed to be out there exploring the galaxy, but you would expect like you know, there's it, well, even you know, in Next Generation, the uh, the Enterprise was doing a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, just uh, we got to take these medical supplies to this colony over here, and you know, run these this this shipment of food to this colony over there. And, um, but uh, but it always seems so noble on Next Generation, and uh, it was fun to to hear, especially Malloy kind of griping about it, like uh, uh, oh, this again. Yeah, <laughs> another supply run. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then we go ahead. No, go for it. Well, so we also got um, uh, return of Lieutenant Tyler from the first episode. We did, and uh, yeah, and uh, she and Mercer are, um, as seen in the end of the last episode, they are kind of, kind of getting into each other, and uh, they're they're still dating. Um, and it was fun to like she comes on the the the. Uh, the bridge and has a little conversation with him and Kelly's there. And uh, you could see in Kelly's eyes, just like on her face, like she, she kind of realizes something is up. Mm -hmm. Um, What she says later on when, when Ed finally reveals to her that he's been dating Lieutenant Tyler, she's like, yeah, I know. It's like, I can see how you are (laughs) around her. Um, But uh, but what'd you, what'd you think of that little, their, their relationship? Like, you know, they're, they're movie nights and watching the King and I and all that stuff. Uh, I, so I was trying to, trying to come at it objectively because I kind of knew what was, <laughs> um, I, I was going to ask if you did, because <laughs> I, I was totally fooled. I did not know 
until again my observation skills are completely on point um but the uh yeah when when they revealed it to me in the show that's when i figured out what, what was going on yep. but uh. so you already like did you recognize the actor like did you, you well and did you know in episode one of the season that 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 was the same person who was in season one and uh kind of put it together already uh yeah yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did, but uh, but again, I you know got some extra information that's not normal. <laughs> a little bit before the uh, the episodes aired okay. as well. Right. So yeah, uh, but <laughs> trying to look at it objectively, it seemed like it was kind of a fast. You know, it's kind of moving fast, mm-hmm. and um, he uh, um, Captain Mercer uh, t- seems like he tends to jump kind of into relationships quickly. I think that's right. I think that's right. Well, and Kelly kind of calls him on it a little bit too, I think, or somebody does. So maybe it would be, it was Tyler later on when, um, but somebody in the episode points out that he is uh, kind of all in when he gets in. They don't use those words exactly, but yeah. uh, But I I definitely see that in his personality, just even the way he leads. And, uh, you know, he's very, he leads from his heart. um, And, uh, you know, he's looking for something. He's looking for companionship. He's looking for, uh, you know, kind of someone to share these experiences with. And, uh, and uh, somebody that checks all the boxes. <laughs> yeah. Plus some extra boxes. Yeah, some extra boxes. Yeah, she checks those too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, you know, as we find out later what was really going on, that, that kind of makes that even more sad because you kind of, figure well she she knew what those boxes were and she's intentionally making sure that they get checked like you know right. she's been playing um but i like the idea of like you know he, he's like sharing with her like his his musical tastes and his um his movies and and you know all of this stuff and um yeah i uh i was a little worried at first um because you know, anytime you have like one person in the relationship, like sharing all this stuff with the other person and the other person is not really like, like she never gets to pick the movie or, or, you know, like, does she not like movies at all? Does she not have like her own musical taste? Like, I don't know. It was, it was a little bit of a weird kind of a vibe there, but, uh, um, you know, you find out later on, of course, that that's exactly what was going on. Like she, she was intentionally just kind of being this kind of blank slate that he could just, kind of put whatever he wanted to uh onto it right yeah um i like that conversation between him and kelly about uh how kelly knows and she talks about uh there's the way he smiles Mm, when lieutenant tyler's around he's got 15 (laughs) different smiles or yeah, eleven of them are passive aggressive (laughs) i thought that was pretty great yeah what was it and she, I, he kind of does a smirk, and she says, "That's that's number four or something like that." Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is sweet, you know, that she still, you know, she knows him that well, and she still is that observant about him. Um, you know, it kind of makes me want those crazy kids to be able to figure it out and get together. But at the same time, like we've talked about before, like I am perfectly fine with them moving on. I just want it to be hard for them to move on, and that's what's that's what I'm seeing. It, yeah, you know it. And scenes like that, like it's not going to be easy for them to move on. Um, 
And so, uh, he's, go ahead. Uh, yeah, and yeah, that's that's right. Kind of a difficult, um, a difficult transition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I find out Ed's a big Billy Joel fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So get a couple of musical cues in from they, Billy. They, yeah, they did, and including the one at the uh, the end, which uh, I never thought I'd laugh at that song, but mm, mm. I did. <laughs> so, <laughs> which part hit you funny? I don't. I don't think I was laughing. I was well, kind of. <laughs> it was. Uh, I. 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 Uh, it, it caught me off guard at first, and then, like, I, I hear the opening. Uh, it's the opening um, chords in that song. And uh, I just started laughing. Okay. <laughs> it's like, you got to be kidding me that this. <laughs> and then kind of like the, uh, you know, the, 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 the montage turns and. Yeah. Kind of the whole thing. Just, I, I lost it. I, I, okay. It was, um, it was just unexpected. Yeah. But, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. So she got, uh, which we find out um, it wasn't for uh, for let's go on vacation reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. Got him to to you know, leave the ship uh, in order to be intercepted by uh, the three krill fighters. Yeah, and that was super effective how they did that. Like I, I hadn't really thought about it before, and you know I, we keep comparing. I, I I keep comparing to Next Generation because um, it's such an obvious influence. Um, but it always compares so favorably. Like, and I'd love Next Generation. Don't get me wrong, but you know how many times have we seen somebody in a in a shuttle on Next Generation? You know, off by themselves, like going to a planet or whatever. And and sometimes they get into trouble. But just in this particular case, I just I felt like the isolation of oh crap, here are these three fighters, and we don't even we don't know what they're doing out there. We don't know if. You know, for all we know, like at first, it seems like they are just kind of there by happenstance. Like, um, you know, they they cloak the shuttle and the the fighters kind of just fly past and go, "Woo, okay." But like before that, I was like, "Oh crap!" Like that would be really terrifying to be in this little shuttle with no weapons on it, and you know, you're far away from the Orville. You're just kind of stuck out there, and who knows, you know, what could happen to you. Um, it's, it's kind of like being in a lifeboat at sea or something. It's just like, there's all these, this danger, this possible danger around. Um, so it was just really effective, like, it, you know, seeing the little blips on the, on the radar and then we see what they are and they're krill and, um, and they, they go past and it's like, Ooh, okay, good. But then they turn around and it's like, Oh man, what is up? And, uh, but I was, I was really concerned for, <laughs> uh, for Ed and Tyler at the, in the moment. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, you do think you get the feeling like, oh wow, okay, good. They got them. <laughs> they they went past. Yeah, and and um, my wife. We were I was watching with my wife and son, and she figured out before I did what uh, what was going on because she goes, "This is this is kind of suspicious." Oh no, I know what it was. I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but it was when uh, when Tyler was being tortured, and um, uh, she just she started to suspect there that. Uh, um, putting that together with uh, this, you know, all these events and the the ships turning around and then knowing to like vent the what is it, vent plasma or something or yeah, 
Yeah, I believe it was plasma. That's what uh, I think. That's what she said. It was. Yeah. Some kind of plasma. I couldn't catch the. I didn't catch even on both my, <laughs> both times I watched. <laughs> I didn't catch exactly what the what plasma, but. Yeah, but somehow it adheres to the shuttle to to reveal where it is, and so anyway, my wife is very smart and uh, and figured that out way ahead of me. Yeah, I um, watched uh, actually. Uh, my wife watched both watch both times with me as well. And this mm. became, it, it instantly became her favorite episode. Really? Yeah. She, she just absolutely loved this episode. Cool. Which, what was, what specifically about it? And maybe it might've uh, just, it, well, Billy Joel <laughs> and yeah, okay. uh, the, uh, the musical cues and the scoring and everything just, um, yeah, she loved it. Cool. Good. Yeah, it was super strong. Like it was, uh, it was another great one. Um, not to like, I don't want to start. I know we, we I want to finish talking about it, like right. kind of scene by scene. But just overall, like it was, I really, really enjoyed it uh, as I have, you know, <laughs> every episode of this series. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, so being, meanwhile, go ahead. Um, no, go. Yeah, go for it. I, I, you're getting okay. into the what I was getting ready to. So go, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So meanwhile, back on the Orville. Uh, Malloy has a conversation with Kelly where he talks about wanting to take the command test. Right. And, uh, and she's skeptical. Um, she is skeptical, <laughs> which, you know, it, it, I get it. Right. He's hasn't really shown a ton of initiative um, or uh, ambition before now. And uh, we find out a little bit later, I think part of the reason that he wants to do this, but I don't know that it's the full reason. So like later on, he's, kind of talking to a, a female officer in, in the, in the, uh, the mess hall. And he's kind of, you know, say, Hey, I'm uh, taking this test and I'm going to be a captain someday. He's kind of using it to like pick up girls. Right. Right. And, and, and Kelly kind of warns him away from that as a motivation. But uh, do you get the feeling like that is really his motivation or like, I, I feel like there's something deeper going on there. Uh, that, uh, yeah. There, there's gotta be a, I, I feel like there is a deeper motivation, but you know, that that seems like it on the surface. Yeah, but you know, maybe like, maybe it's maybe it's because he can't wear the zipper jackets all the time, and he's got to have something else. <laughs> like, I wonder if it has something to do with Lamar getting a promotion. Uh, yeah, maybe. you know, so they've they've kind of broken up that team, and like, so I I just I'm completely just reading into it right now, and and. I, I'm, very curious to see where this goes, but uh, but I really like that they're kind of doing something with Malloy because um, he's super funny. Um, I love him there at the helm, but uh, but also you know with all these characters, I want to see all these characters kind of grow and um, you know and change over the course of the series. So uh, that, like, there's definitely there's more to it than just picking up girls. I'm I'm confident of that, but I'm not sure exactly what all of it is, and I don't think he knows necessarily what all of it is. Right. But, but he's feeling some kind of impulse to uh, to do something different. So, what did you think about the Rorschach test? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> like he's absolutely horrified about what, yeah. whatever it was he was seeing in the in the. <laughs> yeah, and I love that we don't know, and we had seen. In the the uh, you know next time on the Orville you know clip from last uh, last yeah. week, we saw that this is a hostile work environment <laughs> line, which you know was funny enough out of context, but in context, 
Oh my, that was that was probably the biggest laugh that I got of the whole <laughs> episode. <laughs> yeah, this one uh, was uh, was lighter on the humor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of heart in this one. A lot of you know, I mean, it, it's hard to see Ed get his heart broken. Um, but uh, but the Malloy stuff was was a good kind of uh, breather from the heavier scene uh, stuff between uh, Ed and Tyler. So Ed and Lieutenant Tyler do get captured by the Krill, um, and they have a view screen. They make Ed watch on a view screen. She's getting tortured, he thinks, uh, and they ask him for some command codes, which he finally breaks down and gives. Um, and that's the part where my wife was like, "Okay, this this is something else is going on here. This woman, this something was something's not right with Tyler." And uh, sure enough, we find out that she is um, the Krill woman from. Uh, what was the name of that episode from last season? Krill. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so hard to remember. <laughs> but, yeah, she was the teacher that uh, that they encountered. And, um, you know, it was really cool that they just they completely just put the, the shoe on the other foot because, you know, she basically does to the Orville exactly what Ed and uh, Gordon did on her show. Yep, um, using... Uh, what she called transcellular micrografting, which was a different method than the uh, the cloaking device that Isaac created for uh, right. Ed and Malloy. Yeah, you get the sense that she was like surgically altered, right? Yeah. Not just, yeah. Um, but, and, and that we find out that she kind of heard about this general plan to try to turn or uh, get information out of a planetary union captain and she volunteered for it and had the captain all picked out that she right. wanted to yeah i've got to play. someone in mind for this <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but uh i don't know what did you how'd you feel about her motivation and like did she were you convinced that like the what they had done to her in season one was like this was kind of a justifiable i'm not saying like like you would have done the same thing, but like, do you think like she has taken it to, like to the next level, or and if so, is that because she was really hurt by him, or is it because she's Krill and that's just the way they are? Or like, what's your read on that? Yeah, I I think she's struggling with it. Um, sure, and really th- through this and th- th- through the whole episode, I I didn't know exactly how it was going to turn out. Um, I didn't, you know, I, I knew who she was playing and that she was actually, you know, an, actually an undercover Krill agent. Um, but it, it, it took some turns I wasn't expecting as far as, you know, I thought that she was possibly there because she knew of, well, she was there because she knew of a plot, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, but not that she was you know, centrally involved in the plot, but uh, more just trying to kind of, I mean, because they did, you know, they saved her and the kids. I mean, they obviously mm-hmm. killed everybody else, but kind of thought that that might have been a uh, kind of a, a fair trade sort of thing. But, and you, okay. just, and you sort of see some semblance of carrying that, he survived through the things. I mean, she, and my my wife made it, made the point that uh, you know, why didn't she just leave him on the ship 
to and get in the escape pod herself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She certainly could have, but she yeah she brings him along, and like she keeps saying the whole time, "I'm going to kill you at the end." Like that's my plan, but he's convinced, and he he confronts her about it that that something of the 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 person that she was pretending to be is actually from inside of her. Right. And, uh, and, you know, she denies it of course, but, um, uh, but I think that's kind of the fun of the episode is, is trying to figure out if that's true, how much of it's true. And, um, and like we, we, just, we want to see her soften at the end, um, you know, towards him that, that maybe, um, like clearly they're never going to get back together. <laughs> like it's not going <laughs> to, but, but like, you know, a big thing of this episode is how do we start a conversation with the crow that could lead to some kind of a diplomatic situation. And, you know, Malloy experiences that in his uh, command test that he's taking, uh, you know, Kelly, like he, he's kind of put in his uh, Kobayashi Maru kind of situation. <laughs> and uh, it may be not that dire, but he's confronted with a krill who's very aggressive and and Gordon in in classic Gordon banner just you know he he drops the ball on it um and, <laughs> <laughs> which is really funny we could talk about that too like you know he's, he's saying we have a lot of heart and yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. eat a lot of protein one of us with us yeah eat fruits and vegetables so we're very healthy very little dairy <laughs> you don't want to mess with us <laughs> uh but by the end of it, of course, that doesn't work in this, the simulation. He gets blown up. Um, and Kelly says, there is a diplomatic solution. You just you have to find it. Like, that's that's the test that you're taking. Um, so yeah. it's kind of put out there. And then you kind of see between Ed and, and uh, is it? Talia. How do you pronounce her? Talia. Yeah. Um, that's what Ed's working on, too. He's like, he's, you know, he's trying to figure out how can we kind of bridge this humongous chasm between us and the krill right and uh so the um the reason for the escape pod being needed is uh, they were boarded by um the shock tall which you've noted looks just like you know they, they look like orcs <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah they do um yeah, that that credit goes to my son. Like uh, they they showed up, I went, "Oh, trolls!" And David's like, "Orcs." Like, yeah, you're right. They're more like orcs. Yeah, I was trying to uh, place, um, like, why I just the 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 design looks familiar. Trying to place what it is, and orcs nails it. Yeah, yeah, they're bald. They got the pointed ears, and, and they're cool. Like I, I'm very curious to uh, to see if they show up again. Like, and I love this idea the krill are so aggressive um, that of course they have more than one enemy. And right. uh, you, you get a little of that on Star Trek, you know, like the Klingons, you know, hate the Federation, but they also, in the, in the like older era, they hate the Federation, but they also hate the Romulans. And, um, but uh, it just, it, it was a surprise when the Shaktal showed up, but when uh, Talea explains like the history between the krill and the Shaktal, like it's like oh well of course like you know they would have like these other enemies and it's really cool that some of them turn out to be pretty powerful. Um, it's kind of I don't know if I'm reading into this, but she's describing like the krill history with the Shaktal, and she says something like they uh, um, their 
the Shaktala, like on the edge of Krill space and the Krill had taken like one of their planets or something by divine right or something like that. And like, I, I was kind of picking up like a manifest destiny yeah. kind of a vibe there. Like if, if there's like a colonial like, kind of indigenous situation, um, uh, which, you know, kind of got me rooting for the Shaktal. <laughs> if that's actually the case, it's like, uh, cause I think I came up when we were watching it and my family was, and somebody asked the question, like, why are these people so like diligent? Why are the Shaktal so, so kind of determined to uh, to hunt down like every last one of these krill. Yeah, um, and I think Talia makes the comment that they that they leave no or like leave no one alive or right take right. no prisoners or side it was something along those lines. Yeah, which could be like a cultural thing of this this particular alien race, but it also could just be because of whatever atrocities the krill have perpetrated on them in the past. Right, you know this their their righteous retribution. So I hope there's much more to be explored there. It feels like, I mean, there certainly could be, but, uh, but I would love to see that, you know, in season three or maybe even, you know, later in season two, if they choose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> could be. I don't know about that one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Don't know. Yeah. All right. You know, all the spoilers. I don't <laughs> just leave it that way. <laughs> no, that one. I really don't know. I, but, uh, Oh yeah, so um, there's a distress beacon, a krill dispre- uh, distress beacon, mm-hmm. and um, we find that that the uh, the planet uh, one day on the planet would you know talk about really inconvenient timing to uh, <laughs> to, <laughs> to land on it for a for uh, somebody who's a krill that mm-hmm. um, the uh, the days on that planet are basically uh, the equivalent of twenty three Earth days. Yeah. And they don't have enough food to last that long, so as it has to go out and, and mount this uh, uh, this beacon, this distress beacon. They can get it up to the top of the highest point that they could find, and um, so and, and it's kind of a neat scene because there's like well, by the time we get there, there's been a couple of moments where you know they could have left each other, or she could have killed him, but she didn't, and um, or he could have escaped and he didn't. Um, and and so like he's like he's still like the whole time he's like trying to build trust and trying to build some kind of relationship, and uh, but he the situation means that he has to go out there by himself because she can't get into the sun and uh, so he goes and sets up the beacon and of course he calls the Orville instead of calling the Krill. Yeah. Um, and so, so stop me if I skip too much here, but the Orville shows up. Uh, they take her into custody. There's a, there's a cool shootout with the uh, the Shaktal. Um but uh, just in the nick of time, they uh, they escape, and uh, they get Talia in the the brig. But then Ed decides to let her go. Yeah, that's that um, taking the diplomatic approach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Seeing if maybe uh, showing that kindness can uh, bring the maybe bring the Krill and the Union to the table. Right, right. And everybody counsels them against it, and they say, you know, the admirals are not going to go for this. They are going to be, you know, completely ticked off. Um, I don't know. Like, I would be curious to see what that conversation went like, because, um, you know, as a captain, like, he's got to have a certain amount of leeway and and making his own decisions um, kind of on the fly like that. But, uh, but, yeah, I I don't know if 
if the Admiralty has his back in those kinds of moments or if they would just really kind of take him to task for it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, hopefully the, uh, hopefully the Krill arc with the same characters here just, uh, kind of continues. Um, mm-hmm. you know, don't have to have half the season dedicated to it, but yeah. there's a lot to explore. Right. Yeah. Well, and I love that, that, you know, they, anytime you have a story about two groups of people who just do not see eye to eye, they're not on the same page and they kind of learn to, to work together. Like I am completely a sucker for that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't want the whole show to be about that, but I am very into this as a kind of recurring plot line. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, we, we, we end on something we touched on earlier with, uh, another Billy Joel track. Yeah. <laughs> Always a woman to me. Yeah. Yeah. Which, <laughs> yeah, it kind of takes on a different meaning <laughs> with <laughs> referencing to <Talia. laughs> Yeah. But yeah. And he just, the, the, the sadness um, mm-hmm. in his eyes just I don't know this was um, this episode was some of uh, some of Seth's best uh, work mm-hmm. in the yeah. uh, in the in the series so far he really like Ed is such a great character and like you know I haven't seen like a ton of um, other things from Seth MacFarlane but like I don't know I I, I don't I'm kind of afraid to because I don't I don't know that I, it'll ever kind of match like what I'm seeing in, in the Orville, but, um, he, that is such a great character. He's such a great leader and captain and he's just, he's completely heart. Um, you know, he's, he leads with his emotions. Um, but with this kind of core, this very strong kind of, uh, sense of right and wrong, mm-hmm. uh, behind it too. Like he's not, you know, just, he's not carried away by his emotions, but he, he, um, I don't know. He's, he's, he's very, very centered, um, and kind. And, uh, I just, I really like the guy a lot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, that's it for the episode, I think. Yeah. And, uh, so there was some big news, um, in the past day, I don't know if you, I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, um, Scott and and Adrian uh, went public with their uh, relationship. Oh, they, cool! Uh, yeah, they they're publicly engaged. Oh, so, neat! I yeah. did not know that part. Congratulations to uh, Scott and Adrian. We'll be talking to Scott a little bit later this season. Nice. I think sometime around episode eight or nine, something like that. Um. So, yeah. And uh, next week, um, the episode is All the World is Birthday Cake. No. Uh, <laughs> the Orville makes first contact and a new crew member joins the ship. So, uh, you know, everybody can probably guess who that new crew member is. Well, yeah, they mentioned in this episode that um, that uh, Patrick Warburton's character is, you know, he is an interim replacement and that they're expecting the new security chief soon. So... That, that has to be who that is. Yep. That's who that is. 
And so we've got uh, one week left in our contest uh, for the albums with La La Land Records. And uh, that contest closes at midnight Pacific on January 25th. So get your entries in uh, on Twitter or Instagram. And that's it for the news. Cool. Um, all right. So, yeah, I guess that just leaves us to say that if you are not already... Please follow us on Twitter at Planetary underscore Union. We are on Facebook at Planetary Union Network. We are on Instagram at Planetary Union Network. And our website is planetaryunion.net. And, uh... <laughs> Perfect. She can lead you to love. She can take you all she can ask for the truth, but she'll never believe And she'll take what you give her as long as it's free Yeah, she steals like a thief, but she's always a woman to me Production.